you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John. <clears throat> Today we'll be in the Gospel of John, dealing with chapter 20 in its entirety. And as you can tell, I'm struggling with uh, losing my voice. Hopefully I can make it uh, through to the end. If you don't have a Bible, John uh, chapter 20 is on page 625 in the Pew Bible in front of you. You know, Charles Spurgeon has uh, a lot of great advice for preachers in a book called Lectures to My Students. Amazing book for preachers. 99.9% um, .9 great advice. One of them that's not so great, which I didn't take this morning, was to warm your voice up by smoking a nice cigar. <laughs> not, not great advice. So <clears throat> going with a traditional uh, warm cup of tea here made by uh, my lovely wife, Angie Jones. Of course, I can make a cup of tea, but it's better if she makes it, right? So um, if you found your way there, please go ahead and stand as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had, not, had, had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter the other disciple, the one, whom, and the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they, were, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood, weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and, the pla and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There are days in human history which ushered in a new time uh, where the world and humanity would really never be the same. Uh, Massive events that have occurred. Uh, The founding of the Roman Empire by Augustus Caesar in 27 BC, surely one of those dates in history which the entire world would never be the same again, even uh, influencing the West even to today. The birth of Muhammad, the founder of Islam in 570 AD, is no doubt one of these days. I would say Martin Luther nailing his 95 Thesis to the door in Wittenberg, the chapel door there in uh, 1517. That was a day that would change the course of world history, still affects us today. Things you might not think about, like the invention of the steam engine, absolutely revolutionized the world. Um, 1776, uh, the Declaration of Independence changed global world history as we know it. These are massive, important days in world history. The uh, invention of the airplane, maybe you've never thought about that, how that changed the world. There's a splitting of the atom in April 14, 1932. The world would never be the same. All incredibly significant days altered the course of world history. But the most significant and important day in human history is the day that our text records here. It's the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, recorded in John chapter 20. When the disciples found the tomb of Jesus empty and then later saw him and experienced him in the flesh. This is the most important day in human history. It's, it, it altered at this point in time the whole course of the nation of Israel. It would eventually overthrow the Roman pagan empire, lay the foundation of civilization as we know it really, but it also has altered the course of countless nations around the world and has altered the lives of billions of individual people. Billions. And additionally, it has cosmic implications to the very nature of reality, that this date altered reality as we know it and will affect the unfolding of the future. This is the most significant event in world history. And today is all about that, all about the resurrection, the whole chapter. We're going to do the whole chapter. I know many of you are probably wondering, why are you doing the whole chapter? Um, and the reason I'm doing the whole chapter is because I, I, I want to try to convey to you in one sitting, I believe, John's intent in framing John chapter 20 the way he did. Okay, John has the benefit of writing last after all the other Gospels. Things are included. He doesn't change things, right? He just records what happens, but he records them from the perspective to where he's driving at certain themes. And I think in order to get that, you've really got to get all of 20 in one sitting. Okay, so that's what we're going to do today, and I think we can get it done. I know many of you are doubters, but I think we can do it. All right, so remember the context of where we are. The Apostles' Creed really follows how John presents this story, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, that he died, that he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And that's where we are today, the resurrection from the dead. So last week, remember where we were, we were at the burial of Jesus, the very quick and hasty burial, which took place between three p.m. and 6 p.m. <clears throat> and what we saw during that time, we focused on the two individuals, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They were secret disciples, if you remember. They were followers of Jesus, but from the shadows, believing to a degree that he was the Messiah, that the kingdom was coming in Christ, seeing his miracles, listening to his teaching. But because they're afraid of man, for fear of the Jews, they hide it, and they're not out in public. And we looked at the incredible danger that a secret disciple is in. Christ says, if you are ashamed of him, then he'll be ashamed of you when he comes. If you don't profess him before men, he won't profess you before his father. And so to stay a secret disciple is a very dangerous thing. But we see that they don't. As all real Christians, real disciples eventually do, they come out of the darkness into the light. And they did that in a very public way. When everyone else was gone, all of Jesus' disciples were gone, these two men risked everything. They're they're powerful men, members of the Sanhedrin. They're wealthy. They've risked everything 
to bury Jesus and to honor him in his death. And so we saw that last week, and that sets up for us the resurrection of Jesus. Now, there are not, there are not a lot of things you can be certain of in life, right? There, there, just, there just isn't. We, um, you're, no doubt, over the course of the past couple of years, you can identify with that. They're just, every, everything is in flux. Uh, my, my parents are planning to take us for their 50th wedding anniversary, you can say congratulations to them. They're back there. Uh, 50 years of marriage. They plan on taking us on a big vacation. And, uh, hey, the Omicron's out. Is it going to get canceled? Don't know. Uh, the one thing that we all know that seems to be absolutely certain is that one day everyone will die. Everyone will die. They'll put us in a grave like they put Jesus in his tomb. We'll all die. And that, that almost appears to be the only thing you can really count on in life, is that one day your life's going to end. But when we come to the resurrection in chapter 20, I think we can see and know three certainties. And that's how we're going to look at this today, if you're taking notes. There are going to be three certainties regarding the resurrection today. Three certainties. And my purpose has got to be what John's purpose is. This is how he ends chapter 20, which is um, the end of his main part of his uh, of his gospel, and it's that you would believe. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian yet, it's my hope, my desire that seeing this resurrection narrative would cause you to believe. And if you're already a Christian, that it would just bolster your belief, that it would just equip you and feed you with the spiritual food that you need to continue to persevere in the world in which we live. So today we'll see three certainties regarding the resurrection. The first certainty we want to see today is the certainty of the resurrection's reality. The certainty of the resurrection's reality. What does this text say? That's what we'll look at. What is, what is John saying in John chapter 20? What does the text say? How is it revealed to us? And then what we're going to see are four common objections to the resurrection followed by some, I think, pretty powerful evidences for the resurrection. But the first thing you have to understand when we're talking about the reality of resurrection, when Christians talk about the resurrection, and I mean Orthodox Christians, there's a whole variety of them running around claiming that name today, right? The resurrection is presented as a literal physical resurrection from death. Right? That's the first thing you have to understand. Jesus is not presented to us ever in the text of Scripture, or in the early church, or in pretty much all of church history till modern times, as simply being some type of resurrection in people's hearts. And that's what we hear so much of today, right? I know Jesus lives because he lives in my heart. And why? while that may be a true statement, you can't merely say that. Jesus didn't have some type of hypothetical resurrection where he just forever lives amongst the community of people calling themselves Christians. He lives in their minds. He lives in their hearts. He inspired them to a better life. The text reveals, and the church has professed, a physical resurrection from death. Jesus is actually alive. He rose from death, and he's alive today. Second, we need to know that we are presented with eyewitness testimony. And there's enough eyewitness testimony here in the scriptures to stand up to a Jewish trial as sufficient evidence for the resurrection of Christ. So we are presented with a physical resurrection by eyewitnesses. This is presented to us in kind of four scenes. Okay, so let's run through these four scenes so we can see the resurrected Christ. The first section is Peter and John. Peter and John coming to the tomb, and Mary sets this up for us. Mary gets up. If you look at your text, she gets up early before, it's, uh, before the sun is up. She's probably not alone because it would be very strange for a Jewish woman to be traveling alone at night. So she goes, but the text focuses on her. She finds that the, the, the stone has been rolled away, and it appears that she assumes, I think like most any person would assume during this time, is that the grave has been robbed. Um, People robbed graves a lot uh, in the Roman Empire during this time. And it would get so out of hand that eventually the uh, Roman emperor would issue a decree that anyone that robbed a grave would uh, be put to death. 
Right? So grave robbery was, uh, it was prevalent. And so she comes, she just sees it's gone, and she's like, oh, someone's taken Jesus. She runs back, she tells the disciples, Peter and John get up, and they start running to the tomb. And John is apparently faster. He's faster, he's faster than Peter, right? Maybe Peter, he's got like that running back speed, I don't know. Or he, he just, he's good for 40, and then he peters out. Don't know, uh, maybe he's big. John, John's faster. John takes off, passes him up, he arrives first. He arrives, he doesn't go in. It's kind of neat, you can see the character of the disciples, I think. He just stops and he stoops to look in. And Peter comes, you know, finally huffing and puffing, and he's like, out the way. And he just rushes right in, right? He just goes right in the tomb. And that's so much like him that we know he just rushes into everything. Then John follows in. Now, they, what they see, it appears, um, awakens John to belief. We aren't told about Peter that he believes, but we're told that John believes because of what he sees. So in the empty tomb, here's what John sees. The grave clothes, which we talked about last week, which were filled with all of these spices, enough spices to bury a king, right, are still there in the place. And it's like there's a shell. They're still wrapped up like a human should be in there. And they're still filled with spices. They're just laid there. And then the head covering, because what they would do was wrap you up to your neck. Then they would put a separate cloth. They would fold that around your head and face. Uh, so sorry, the Shroud of Turin is out, right? The Shroud of Turin is a no-go. You know the Shroud of Turin? The Catholic Church says they have? Come, somebody shake their head up and down. So I know that you've heard of this. The Shroud of Turin, the Catholic Church says, is the burial shroud of Christ. It has an image of his face on it. But it's in one piece. Right? But it cannot be so. John records that they buried him according to the Jewish custom with two cloths, one for the head, one for the body. Interestingly enough, John Calvin addressed that in his sermon over 500 years ago, that the Shroud of Turin can't be real um, because of this detail. But it fits. This is good eyewitness testimony because that's how a Jew would be buried, wrapped to the neck, a separate one for their head. So what's left is this head cloth by itself like, Imagine there's an empty space where the neck and face would go, and then there's the head cloth folded, filled with spices and a shell. So John goes in, and he sees, oh, these, these grave clothes are not torn off, nor are they taken and folded up and put in the corner. He sees an empty shell where a body should be, and he connects the dots. He's the first believer, apparently, in post-resurrection, even though he hasn't seen Jesus physically yet. He sees this evidence... And he concludes, Jesus has risen from the dead. One commentator writes that it's as if Jesus' body has dematerialized and just left these graves closed, which is, of course, I think, what is exactly what happened. Jesus' glorified body, though physical, as we'll see, you know, we'll, we've seen and we'll see next week, can be touched, can eat food, do the things you can do, but also can appear and disappear and do different things. So John concludes, Jesus has risen from the dead. Now the text also says, they didn't understand this yet, right? That this had to occur. Jesus had to rise from the dead. Do you see that in your text? He had to rise from the dead to fulfill scripture. Probably meaning Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16. Psalm 16 says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And we know that David wrote this great psalm inspired by the Holy Spirit about Jesus. And then there's Isaiah 53.10, which says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. That the suffering servant who will be crushed under the wrath of God, that God will sustain him, that he'll prolong his days, he'll see his offspring, and he'll prosper. So they see all this, John believes, and then they go back home. Which is strange to me. But they go back home. Uh, probably shocked. I mean, maybe they're like shell-shocked. Next account is Mary. Okay, sometime while that is going on, 
They go home. Mary goes back to the tomb. She's sitting outside the tomb, crying and weeping. She thinks someone has stolen Jesus' body. Or perhaps that the Romans have taken his body. Jesus is a controversial political figure, so we don't know exactly what she thinks. She just knows, in her mind, looks like someone's taken Jesus. So she's crying, and then she... She then gets up and she stoops to look into the tomb, but she sees two angels, one at the, uh, at the head and one at the feet of where Jesus was laying. And they ask her, they question her, why are you crying? Who, you know, and, they, and she answers, I don't know where they've taken him. Someone's taken Jesus. I don't know where they've taken him. And as she's, as she's finishing that, it's like she senses someone is there. And there's someone there. It's, it's Jesus. So she turns around, but she doesn't recognize him. Don't know why. Uh, she doesn't recognize him. Maybe for the same reason the two disciples on the road to Emmaus don't recognize him. Or maybe because she's crying so much, her, her eyes are covered in tears. Um, but Jesus then asks her the same questions. Why are you crying? Whom are you seeking? And she answers the same way. And as she's answering... She doesn't know who it is. She thinks it's the gardener. An interesting detail. We may look at it a little bit later. Uh, Jesus says her name. Right? He just says Mary. And that's enough. Like She hears Jesus' voice, and she knows who it is. It, it, it clicks. This is Jesus. And so she does what any of you would do. She would run over and grab Jesus. She clings to him, and she believes. So she sees, she believes. And Jesus says, don't cling to me. Go and tell other disciples what you have seen. But what's interesting about the Mary thing, I don't want to make too much of it, but I can't resist, is that Jesus said this about himself and his sheep. He's the true shepherd, and he has sheep. And he says in John 10, 3-4, that his sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And I think we just see a great picture of that here. And the same is true, really, of anyone that's a Christian. Anyone that's a Christian has been called out by Jesus. They've heard his voice in the gospel. They've come to him. They've obeyed. And they followed him. So Mary sees. She's told to go back and tell the disciples she believes. Third, is later that evening, you look at verse 19, Jesus appears to his disciples in a, in a locked room. And the text tells you they're in a locked room because they're afraid. Right? They're still cowards. They're afraid of the Jews. Makes really logical sense. They just crucified their master. And so they're on the run. They're afraid still. They're, locked, they're behind a locked door. And then Jesus just materializes in the room in front of them. Right? And he says, hey, um, come and touch. Come and see. Right? His body can be touched. Come and touch where the nails were. Touch my side. He shows them this great evidence. And they believe. So they see and then they believe. And then verses 21 through 24 we'll deal with in the second point. Uh, it's an interesting passage. We have to deal with that in more in detail. But there's someone not there. Thomas isn't there. So there's just 10, 10 of them there. Now what's interesting is between this appearance, the other Gospels will record other appearances like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That takes place sometime between the morning and the evening, it would appear. Then you have this evening appearance. Okay? But Thomas isn't there. So then you have this long gap, an eight-day gap. Thomas comes back and the other disciples say, we've seen Jesus, he's alive, he's risen, and he is like, he says what every skeptic today says. Right? I'll never believe unless I see it or unless I touch him. Right? I'm not going to believe things I can't perceive with my five senses. That's what all skeptics say today. Thomas is here. And I mean, can you really, honestly, can you, can you blame him though? Well, he gets kind of a bad rap. But no one's seen someone resurrected from the dead, especially unless Jesus has done it. Right? They saw Lazarus, but Jesus had been totally brutalized. His body destroyed and he's like I'm not going to believe it unless I see it and eight days later same thing happens they're in the locked room again Jesus appears and Jesus is kind and gracious to him we're harder on Thomas than Jesus is Jesus is gracious and he says here you go touch it touch my hands touch my side and see All right and so Thomas does and he believes then Jesus makes that famous statement um, First, Thomas professes that Jesus is God, 
And Jesus makes this great statement that um, there's a great blessing for those who have not seen and yet believe. So there are those four recorded events. Peter and John go to the tomb. John believes. Mary sees Jesus. She believes. The disciples see Jesus. They believe. Thomas sees Jesus. They believe. Eyewitness testimony to the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what the church has preached for thousands of years. This is how Paul records it when he is preaching his gospel, which always includes the resurrection from, from the dead. That is the gospel, right? We sometimes, and I'm sure you have, you're giving the gospel. Jesus died for your sins on a cross. If you come to him and you believe in him, he'll forgive you of your sins. Well, we've stopped short because that's not, that's not the gospel. That's only part of the gospel. You've got to get to the resurrection. The resurrection is the Christian thing, right? It makes it absolutely unique, and we'll see why as we get further on into point two. But that's what the church preached. Eyewitness testimony. Jesus rose physically from the grave. Paul records it this way. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Why that detail? So that you could go ask these people. When Paul wrote, they're still alive, go ask them, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Jesus rose from the dead. As Paul records this in the early church period, people are still alive who saw him. Go ask him. If you, if you need evidence, go ask them for their testimony. This is the greatest event in human history. Do you see what this means? If Jesus rose from the dead, everything that he preached is true which means reconciliation with God is possible. That you can actually know God personally and intimately. You can know Him as a Father, not some distant deity who you've got to do all the right works to do in order to gain His favor. That Jesus has gained for you in His death, burial, and resurrection the right to call God Father, to be adopted into His family as a son and have all of your sins forgiven. Reconciliation with God is possible. And secondly, eternal life is possible. If Jesus rose from the dead, and He did, that means eternal life is possible. Death is not the end. right? Humanity has been clamoring, obsessed with a way to beat death. All through history, and even today, looking at manipulating genetics in a way that could prolong life. There's all kinds of things that people are getting into to try to prolong life, and they never will. But the one thing everyone wants, the reality is possible. You can live forever. Not in some spiritualist way, right? Like the Buddhists would say, that you just will become part of everything and nothing at the same time, right? You'll just reach this place. Not some place called nirvana, that's nothing like this world. A physical, eternal life. Everything good about this place. None of the bad things. And it's all possible. This, this means that all of your loved ones who have died before you, that are dead in Christ, they're not really gone. Right? This is how Jesus talks about the resurrection. Right, they talk about uh, he was the God of Abraham. Right, No, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they're still alive. And one day, everyone who has died in Christ will physically live again. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And at his coming, all of those that belong to him. That's earth-shattering. That's entirely different than any religion on the face of the earth. Eternal life is possible. Jesus said in John 6, 38 through 40, 
I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus rose from the dead physically, and here's the implication. Here's the certainty. That is a physical resurrection from the dead, and eternal life is possible. The first certainty is the resurrection's reality. Not a hypothetical, not a resurrection of people's hearts, a physical resurrection from death to life. And Christ, because of that, he himself gives eternal life to all that belong to him. And we will partake in a resurrection like his. Now, there are some objections to the greatest event in human history. There are four. I'll go through them quickly. These are the most, I think, famous. First objection is Jesus did not die on the cross, but merely fainted or swooned. Right? That's the swoon theory. We talked about that two weeks ago or three weeks ago when we, were, when we looked explicitly at the crucifixion. Very briefly, I don't have to re-preach that whole section. This is an impossibility for the very fact that these Roman soldiers execute thousands of people like this. If you listen to the podcast, we discussed at one time because of an insurrection, they crucified over a million people. I think that's right. Hopefully I'm not exaggerating. A million people and lined the Roman roads with it. These are professional executioners. They know when someone is dead. And if they fail at their job, they could suffer the same penalty. They, they rammed a spear through his heart, right? They said, we're, we're, he's dead. I don't know the conversation, but one of them was like, okay, and, and he, he jams a spear. He didn't, he didn't swoon. Like, he wasn't. It's a ridiculous theory. They put him in a tomb somehow over three days after all that loss of blood. He musters up the intestinal fortitude to get out of the tomb and somehow fold up his clothes really nicely again. It's, it's a ridiculous theory. That's the first. The second is what Islam teaches, and that's that Jesus did not die on the cross at all, but somebody else died in his place. They say that uh, Allah would never allow Jesus, the great prophet, to, to die on the cross in such a horrific fashion. So therefore, he let a switcherouski take place. And uh, Jesus was just taken up into heaven. Someone else died. Like some, some other people would like to say it's Judas. Poetic justice. Uh, this is an impossibility. This didn't even come up till 600 years after the resurrection. 600 years after the crucifixion of Jesus is when this first emerges. And it fails for the same reasons the first one fails. If Jesus is on trial, he's given to Roman soldiers. They're not going to crucify the wrong person. They're pretty proficient at their job. It's made up for obvious reasons, right? You want to end Christianity, well, then you have to get away from the resurrection from the dead. And to do that, you've got to have Jesus not die. And for him not to die, you've got to get him off the cross. History uh, proves this to not be true. So if we even just go outside of the Bible, in AD 116, Roman historian and senator Tacitus referred to Jesus' execution by Pontius Pilate. You can look that up if you want. I have the whole quote here. I won't quote it for time. But in 116 AD, it is recorded by a Roman historian Jesus is executed by Pontius Pilate. Josephus records the same truth, in, who, is a, who is a Jewish historian, in 93 AD that Jesus was crucified by Pontius Pilate. So this objection fails. Third objection. Jesus did not rise, but his body was stolen. This is the earliest objection, and it would appear that it had its origins in the Jewish authorities. In Matthew 28, 11 through 15, they bribed the soldiers to lie about what happened. Do you remember what happened? Is that an angel appears, and like a bolt of lightning, they're terrified, and they fall over like dead men. Angel rolls away the stone. Jesus comes out. But they lie, they, they, they're bribed to lie, and they say, we fell asleep, and the uh, disciples came and stole his dead body and took it away. <clears throat> so for this to be true, uh, first off, it can't be true because 
the Roman soldiers would face severe consequences for this, right? Eventually, the truth's coming out. But they did lie, and they said he stole, they stole his body. That's their cover. But for it to be true that Jesus was dead and the disciples stole his body, Jesus' disciples have to maintain a lie their entire lives. And this is an impossibility, that these men would lie um, when they're being tortured, when they've lost their family, their lives, any ability to work a job. Uh, they're being tortured. They're being threatened with death. They somehow, all of them, maintain the same lie. It's an impossibility. Charles Colson, who was involved in the Watergate scandal with President Nixon, you remember him? He became a Christian. He wrote a book. Um, this is what he records. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. There's another version of this, and that's that the disciples overpowered the soldiers and stole his body. Again, absolutely ridiculous. Um, these are professional soldiers, well-equipped, well-trained. It's an absolute, impo it's absolute impossibility. This would be like uh, equipping some rednecks with a couple of Glocks and telling them to take a, uh, a small facility that a couple of soldiers are guarding with 50 cal machine guns. It's a ridiculous impossibility. That's the third. Fourth, this is one I've heard a few times. Uh, all of Jesus' disciples hallucinated. So the 12 hallucinated, so did the 500. They hallucinated Jesus. <clears throat> and it goes like this. They're so overcome with grief and sorrow, the whole world is broken, that they begin to have a mental episode. They hallucinate Jesus' resurrection. Lee Strobel, did it, when he was a non-believer, did a, some type of investigations into Christianity. And one of the people he uh, interviewed was a psychologist. So they, he asked them about this. Listen to what Lee Strobel recorded. He said, I went to a psychologist friend and said, if 500 people claimed to see Jesus after he died, uh, and it was a, I went to a psychologist friend and said, if 500 people claimed to see Jesus after he died, and it was a hallucination. And he said, hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people have the same hallucination, that's a bigger miracle than a resurrection. Not hallucinated, right? Not stolen. Not he didn't die. Not that he swooned. He died. And he rose again. The greatest event in human history. And here are some great evidences for you. Some pretty powerful ones if you think about it. Devoted, devout Jewish people began to worship Jesus as God. To worship anyone or a man as God is absolute blasphemy. Right? Absolute idolatry, if not true. It means risking eternal hell. Not even just losing your family. Risking eternal hell if you're wrong. But in John 20, 28, right here in our text, Thomas, the first professor, maybe Jesus is God. My Lord and my God. None of the other disciples correct him. Jesus doesn't stop him. He worships him as God. In John 1, the writer of this gospel, in John 1 begins with the fact that Jesus is God, eternally God. Right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Matthew 28, 16 through 17, you know this passage, it's right before the Great Commission. Jesus appears to his disciples out on a mountain, and this is what the text records. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, the mountain where Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Jews worshiping a man as God. It's powerful evidence. And not just them. 
This began to spread. This began to spread throughout. Many Jewish people began to believe this. Second is the transformation of the disciples. How can you account for the disciples who are so, they're so cowardly and afraid, they're hiding in a locked room, that they're willing to go to the temple and to preach the gospel and to defy the authorities even under threat of death? And to keep preaching that gospel until eventually all of them are put to death, except for John. He's exiled to die on Patmos. How can you explain that? The only explanation is they saw someone who was dead alive. And that makes perfect logical sense. Because if Jesus has the power over death and he's alive, what can you threaten me with? You're going to threaten to kill me? Like, so what? I just saw Jesus alive. It's nothing to me now to threaten me with death. It's the only explanation that there is. It's the only logical one. Third, the change of worship. What can account for Jews stopping worshiping on Saturday, the Sabbath, and starting worshiping on Sunday? The only explanation is that's the day Jesus rose from the dead, and so it altered how people worshiped. Fourth, the rise of the early church is not explainable except for that Jesus rose from the dead. What can account for the early church? It's rapid growth and it's rapid spread, even under severe, grotesque persecutions. The only explanation is that these people, over 500, saw Jesus alive and were willing to die for that truth. And that truth was empowered by a risen Christ who had sent his spirit into the world. The rise of the early church is unexplainable if Jesus stayed dead. This first certainty is the certainty of the resurrection's reality. Jesus rose from the dead physically. And because he did, eternal life in him, forgiveness of sins, are also a reality. Secondly, there's the certainty of the resurrection's creation. This one is a little more theological. I'm trying to help you to get it because I think it's very clear in our text. We're going to come back now to verses 21 through 23. That's this section. The certainty of the resurrection's creation. The resurrection of Christ was the first fruit of a new cosmic reality. Okay. We as Christians look forward in hope to a time when this created world will be changed and pass away and will be replaced with a new reality. Reality, as you know it, will be altered. Heaven and earth will come together. God will dwell with his people in a physical, recreated universe where we enjoy fellowship with God forever. And he removes all pain, pain, sorrow, sickness, death, sin. None of that is in this place, this new reality called the new heavens and the new earth. And we look forward to that place. And it's coming. But that reality began when Jesus rose from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, this new cosmic reality began. And that future reality is present in the formation of the church. It's present now in the formation of the church. And the resurrection marks the beginning of God's new people. <clears throat> Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And we will be made like him at his coming. But now at his resurrection, Christ has begun something new in the formation of a people. And I think that new creation theme makes the best sense of John 20, 21 through 23. John 20, 21 through 23 seems to be a strange section, right? Jesus appears, they touch him, and he says, Peace be with you. He says peace a few times, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. And then he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. And then he says this deal about them being able to forgive sins and retain them. It's a strange thing. But if taken through the lens of new creation... It makes total sense. The reason people struggle with this passage, I think, is because they try to, to make, they, they see, a skeptic would see, hey, there's a contradiction. Uh, Acts records the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
at Pentecost. And here you have Jesus giving some type of strange little Pentecost. John didn't know what he's talking about. This is just evidence the Bible is corrupted or there's errors. And then there are other people who genuinely believe the Bible is inerrant, and they have all these theories on how to make sense of it. And I think the best one, which is not original with me, because there's nothing original when you do enough digging, is that this functions as like a living parable, right? And you saw another one of those before in John's gospel, right? As Jesus washed the disciples' feet, you remember what happened? Peter's like, you're never going to wash me. Jesus said, if I, don't, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And he's like, well, then wash all of me then, right? Were they, was Jesus literally washing away the disciples' sins as he washed their feet? No, right? It's a picture of what will take place in the future of what Christ will accomplish for them in his death, burial, and resurrection and the sending of the Spirit, that they will be washed and renewed. It didn't literally happen when he washed their feet, but it's pictured there, right? So we don't want to do like Peter. Right? We want to see that this is in the same fashion, pointing to the future event. It points to the future event of Pentecost, where the Spirit will come and power them. But it has a powerful in how Jesus frames this new creation theme. Right? And it, it, it's really, if you've been in John for a long time, it kind of is there. You see it. John starts his gospel differently than anyone else, right? John's gospel starts at creation itself, right? in the beginning. Sounds just like Genesis 1, because that's what he's referring to. In the beginning was the Word, right? So we're even pre-God speaking in Genesis 1. Jesus was in the beginning. He made everything, John tells us. There's not anything that's been made that Jesus hasn't made. And if you go back to Genesis, when God forms a man... It's unique. He forms him in an intimate fashion and bends down and breathes the breath of life into him. John's new creation theme, which emerges here very clearly, pictures Jesus, the firstborn of new creation, forming a new humanity. There's a new humanity. Jesus is starting over the human race with these people. And he breathes on them the breath of life. You see the imagery? The new creation theme? He breathes on them the, bre the breath of life. And this formation of this new humanity, this inbreaking of, of new creation in Jesus and in his people, it brings about currently um, certain aspects, which I think we see in the text. The first would be peace. Jesus is, every time he shows up, says to the disciples, peace. Shalom. Peace with God. Peace with God is his first words to his disciples. Peace. And this is accomplished through his, through his work, through his death, burial, and resurrection, that he he takes people that do not have peace with God, that are not reconciled to God, that are enemies with God, and through His work, He gives His people peace with God. Romans 5, 1-2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This reconciliation brings peace. And then He commissions them as ambassadors to go out into the world. Look at verse 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. <clears throat> so, as he's constituting this new humanity, he sends them, as he was sent into the world, in the same way. The Father sent Jesus into the world. Jesus takes this new people, new humanity starting over with. He sends them out into the world. How was Jesus sent? Well, Jesus came preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And he sends his people out into the world, preaching the good news of the gospel, preaching the kingdom. He sent. We're sent. Jesus was sent to the world, to sinners. And we are sent into the world to sinners. And we need to make sure that we don't forget this reality. Okay? It's very easy for Christians to forget this, to be a sent people 
right? means that you're sent into a world that's not like you, a world that's unworthy of being sent to. They don't deserve it. But think how Jesus came into the world. Humble, humiliated, and who does he associate with? The lowly, sinners, tax collectors and sinners. So much so that they call him a, a drunkard himself. This man eats with tax collectors and sinners. What a scandal. And I think in the church we need, we need to remember this reality because it's easy to get stuck in a bubble, right? It's very easy. Remember hearing the story once, uh, a, a preacher told that he was invited to preach at a campus ministry. And this group of Christians, this campus ministry, spent like, the, like two weeks prior, they spent a bunch of money, you know, used various means to market this, to invite all of the campus to come hear this, uh, this gospel presentation. And so when he arrived and he came to preach, there was only a handful of Christians present. And he says, afterward I asked, I said, why don't you think there's uh, any, any non-Christians here? And the answer was honest. And this one man said, I think it's because we don't know any, we don't know any non-Christians. That's a pretty sad reality. We ought not to forget this, this part, right? We're sent into the world like Jesus was, and Jesus knew plenty of sinners. Do you know any? Are you friends with any sinners? People that aren't Christians? People who, like majority of the world, we say they're, they're immoral. Um, they're not like us. I wonder if you have any friends that are not Christians. See, it takes real work to be sent, I think. It, ta- it takes real active work. There's, there's always a place for like a track ministry where you can drop tracks everywhere. I'd encourage you to do that. Always have a track on you. And it, honestly, it's easier to share the gospel with a stranger. It doesn't take a lot of work. Um, or even open-air preaching, always a place for that. Um, huge part historically in the Christian faith. Uh, but what takes real, real work, and is it, you get, you'll get a little bit messy, even be inconvenienced, is to make a friend with a non-Christian. To actually have them become part of your life. Right? Invite them to do things with you. Spend time with them. Um, That's what Jesus did. That's how he sends us into the world, right? He sends us as he was sent. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And we ought to be friends of sinners as well. And we have uh, the receiving of the Spirit, which we already said is like a parable a picture of what will happen at Pentecost. And I hope that part you can see is clear. I think it becomes clear when you look at the foot washing. That they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and this new creation, this new creation reality is launched into this world through the church. As they're sent like Jesus, they're empowered by the coming of the Holy Spirit. It looks forward to the coming of the Spirit. But then there's a strange section, if you look back at your text, on the forgiveness of sins. It's odd, right? The first time you read it, you're like, oh, it's kind of weird. Um, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Now, this, this is one that the Catholics love to seize upon, right? They say, yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. We've got a priesthood. You're not priest. I mean, we're a priest. And if you come to us, we'll absolve you of your sins after you make satisfaction, right? So do what we say, do your Hail Marys, burn your candles, uh, do whatever, and you'll have satisfaction. Your sins will be forgiven. We'll declare you forgiven. So they love to seize upon this. But this this has to be taken within the missional context of what we just read, because this is about the inbreaking of a new reality. It's about the church, the equipping of the church with the power of the Holy Spirit to go as Jesus went to be incarnated into the world with the preaching of the gospel. This passage is really about the gospel, right? The church has the authority to declare sins forgiven in Christ. We have that authority. 
you can tell someone, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and your sins will be forgiven today. And if they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you could tell them your sins are forgiven. Not because you're forgiving them, but because Jesus says they're forgiven. Right? Because God forgives them in Christ. And you can tell somebody, you, you, you don't have Christ, you don't want the gospel, your sins are not forgiven. That's what is going on in this passage. D.A. Carson writes this, There is no doubt from the context that the reference is to forgiving sins or withholding forgiveness. But though this sounds stern and harsh, it is a simple result of the preaching of the gospel, in which either brings men to repent as they hear of the ready and costly forgiveness of God, or leaves them unresponsive to the offer of forgiveness, which is the gospel, and so they are left in their sins. And so the church has this authority to preach the gospel and to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. Anyone who comes to Christ will be forgiven of their sins. Anyone who does not come to Christ is dead in their trespasses and sins. And people will say, well, who are you to say such a thing? I'm an ambassador of Christ. I say what he says. He gave us the authority to say that. And we don't need to be ashamed of it. Anyone who does not come to Christ is dead in their sins, but anyone who comes to Christ finds their sins forgiven, reconciled with God, and they become part of this new creation, this new cosmic reality, this new humanity that Jesus is building. Anyone who comes to Christ and has their sins forgiven becomes part of new creation presently. That's what the church has the authority to go proclaim. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And in the Greek, it, it literally just says this, If anyone is in Christ, new creation. That hits a little different, right? Like, you're now in Christ, you're part of new creation. Now. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ was reconciling us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is the second certainty of the resurrection. It's the resurrection's creation. That Christ and his resurrection created a new reality. And we don't see it fully. We await its coming. But we become part of it now. As he creates new humanity. And he breathes into his church the Holy Spirit. The certainty of the resurrection's reality, the certainty of the resurrection's creation. Now the certainty of the testimony of the resurrection. Or to the resurrection. The certainty of the testimony to the resurrection. <clears throat> this last certainty may be a twist for you. A bit of a, a, a surprise, maybe. But after I, I explain it, I think you'll see it. This last certainty of the resurrection is the certainty of the trustworthiness of the Bible. Verse 30. Look at John 20, 30. This is how John decided to end this section on the resurrection. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Granted, he speaks of the whole gospel, but he chose to put it here in chapter 20, and not in chapter 21, which seems odd to many people, but I think it makes perfect sense when you understand, I think, what John is doing. And what he's doing is he's giving a powerful testimony to the trustworthiness of the Bible. Let's see if I can help you to see it. <clears throat> I think we're meant to see it in the way that he has framed chapter 20. If you read chapter 20 and you start, just start counting, you're going to count the phrase believe six times or uh, an implication that somebody did believe whether they say it outright or they just say oh jesus right six times believe and if you look you'll find the the term seeing or showed seven times so the pattern that you get in chapter 20 is this they saw they believed they saw they believed they saw they believed they saw they believed it goes over and over and over until you get to Thomas, and Jesus says this, Have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Special pronouncement of blessing upon all those who will believe on Jesus and don't have eyewitness testimony that they see. They don't, you're not able to see him, you can't touch him, and yet you believe. A special pronouncement of blessing by Jesus upon all those through church history who believe. Then John writes, right after that, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you see the trustworthiness placed upon the testimony of Scripture? Right? But John is trying to get you to see. He's trying to get you to see that the record of eyewitness testimony is as good as seeing it yourself. People like Thomas always say, the skeptics will always say, I'll never believe unless I see. I'll never believe unless I see Jesus risen from the dead. And God tells you, all right, take up the scriptures and see. That's the trustworthiness. That's the certainty. That's the power of scripture. That scripture is as good as seeing Jesus yourself. It's true, it's trustworthy, it's certain. And people for 2,000 years have all come to Christ the same way. They've taken up the Bible, or they've heard the gospel preached, and they have met Jesus themselves, personally. They've seen Him in His Word. I've met Jesus Christ. I've met Him personally. He's met, he's met with me. I've met him in his word. He's as real as any person sitting physically in this room. The Bible is a supernatural book. The Bible will take you to Jesus. And you can behold him with the eyes of faith yourself. He's not dead. He's alive. And this is not just a book. This book is a certain and trustworthy testimony to Jesus Christ. And you can see Jesus risen from the dead as he is yourself in the pages of this book. I hope that you have. And if you haven't, I hope that you will. Jesus is not dead, he's alive. He's not just alive in some mystical sense that, oh, he lives in my heart. Jesus is physically alive, present somewhere in the universe. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all of creation. And he'll re he will return to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is not always returning, as some would say, in some mystical sense. Jesus is alive in my heart. He's always returning to some sense. Jesus is alive. He's more alive than any of us. And you can meet him. The scriptures are trustworthy, so trustworthy that John places that right there after Jesus' promise of great blessing to anyone who would believe and not have seen him risen from the dead. And John says... Here you go. Here's what you need to believe. Jesus is alive. And you can join in in that life. I pray that you will. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian, you've heard Jesus, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he is alive and he offers eternal life. And it's my hope that everyone here, if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, that you would become a Christian today. And you can become a Christian today. By simply turning away from sin, from your former way of life, counting the cost that Christ is worthy to follow. To lose everything to follow and just simply come to him empty handed. He'll save you. He'll give you new life. He'll bring you into this new cosmic reality. It's a new reality in breaking into the world through his church. He'll take you to himself. I pray that you would do that today. Today we've seen three certainties regarding the resurrection. 
There's a certain of the, re- the certainty of the resurrection's reality, the certainty of the resurrection's creation. It's created a new humanity, a new creation, and the certainty of the testimony of the resurrection. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for helping me to keep my voice through the end of the sermon. God, I pray that your word would make our hearts come alive and with, the, with this certainty, the reality that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. A death, death isn't the end. We'll live again forever in a physical reality with you. And God, help us to see ourselves as a, as a, as a people that are sent into the world. Help us to understand that you have commissioned us and sent us into the world to take your gospel to sinners, to know them, to be friends with them, to care about them, and that would require us to humble ourselves. So God, I pray that you would humble humble us by the power of the Spirit, and I pray for any here that are not Christians that you would do the converting work in their life, in their heart even now as they sit there, that you would move upon them and grant them repentance and faith in Christ. It is in his name I pray. Amen.